Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Peter Carroll's distinguished career has spanned over 100 productions and 50 years. He continues to work in musical theatre, new Australian texts and the global classics. He has worked with the major theatre companies and commercial managements throughout Australia, including MTC, QTC, STC, STCSA, Belvoir, Bell Shakespeare and Opera Australia. Peter was a founding member of the Nimrod Theatre Company in the 70s and has been with the Sydney Theatre Company from its opera house beginnings. He presently graces their stages in Patricia Cornelius's Do Not Go Gentle, an eloquent and confronting play that lyrically aligns the fragility, challenge and resilience of the ageing process alongside the journey of Robert Scott's Antarctic expedition. It is a theatrical feast that provides a sobering and reflective audience experience. Stages is thrilled to welcome Peter Carroll to discuss Do Not Go Gentle and A Life Lived Well in the Theatre in this riveting two-part conversation. Those two lovely things. Who's that? Just as we go on, the this one here, yeah. yeah. Um, Arthur McIntyre. His name is. He used to oh. be an arts reviewer. I think he, he, he's dead now. Um, but he left a whole lot of his paintings to a friend of mine who gave me that one. I love it. Isn't it great? Yeah. Got so much in it. Oh, it has. It's like the jumble of. Several minds, including my <laughs> yeah. own, that I know. But it's basically optimistic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the colours, I love the colours. Love the colours. The colours are great, yeah. Peter so, Carroll, um, it's lovely to have you finally sitting down uh, at the microphone. For this. And lovely to be sitting down here <laughs> opposite you, Peter. When Peters meet, you see. P1 yeah. and P2. Yes. <laughs> you can be P1. Just for, for the for next today, minute or two. Yes, okay. I, I bow to you. Um, Peter Carroll, can you recall the first time you saw an actor and perhaps recognised that that's an occupation that, that you could do, that is a possibility? Well, yes, I can. I can very distinctly. Um, I saw John Alden's Lear at the Old Theatre Royal and I was in school, it must have been about 15, I think. Think. I'd done, look, I had a, a sort of rather weird voice soprano voice and I did apart from uh, a lot of the Steadfords uh, and it was the era of 
choirs and so and choir status and I led the seconds but I sang at weddings and funerals and on the air so I'd, I'd had a sort of a that was something I did and I that was the thing that I knew I was doing and it was the only time I felt despite all the nerves that that was the only real thing that was happening me an only child you see right. uh, a loner and a um, and with cross eyes and um, lots of eye operations to correct squint, that sort of thing. So, but, but that was that was that. But I remember going, and I went with my mother. She she said yes, we see the Shakespeare. So we went. We were in the gods of the Theatre Royal, and it was only when I went to London years and years later that I realised that all of the the plays that I'd ever seen were mainly from the gods. So I always had that, that view of, of looking down. However, to get back to that performance, the, it was the, uh, which I thought was absolutely extraordinary. John Alden had his own Shakespeare company that he used to toot around. I don't know what I'd think of it now. I, I was overwhelmed by it. Um, I just thought it was beyond magnificent. There was something about the language that the, the, you could actually use spoken words like that with all the power and, and, and um, intensity and, and yet clarity of meaning of this story just sort of left out. It actually put me to bed with a fever for a couple of days, <laughs> I must say, because I just... I couldn't believe what I'd seen. It's the same sort of thing years and years and years later when I'm in the Opera House and uh, uh, the Carmelites and Sutherland then was at the end of that glorious, extraordinary career mm. and wonderful, but then just suddenly there would be whole sections where, where the sound absolutely was in focus and it was like a young girl singing and but it was the shock of it being this is someone actually doing that to me now in this theater and I, it, it's just the most remarkable thing the most wonderful thing the most frightening thing but the most human thing that a person could ever attempt to do i thought and to receive as a as an audience so um, yes John Alden, uh, uh, yes, that was that was it. The energy of that performance, I imagine, but but also um, the language. That, the language that, that was performance is projecting. Was that as, as I say the 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 ability of sp not only music, not only the sung sound, because I'd I'd had even in my childish way I knew the power of that. But spoken language, that it, it could have such complexity and, and such variety and such energy and elasticity and uh, humour, but above all, power, um, that was what, um, that was what utterly uh, captivated me, enthralled me and captured me. So uh, books would have been important in your use, I imagine. Oh, books of... Books have always been mm. yes. I'm I get very edgy if I haven't got a book, 
I certainly on public transport I have to have a book. <laughs> Don't want to waste that time waiting on a railway station or, or you know, all of that. Um, yes, the the books and of course as you get older the wonderful thing is you can return to those books because you've more or less forgotten what they were. <laughs> Though, when you do go back, you think, oh, yes, yes, the, the synapses are slowly, I won't say snapping into place, but they're, they're revving up, revving up, ready to remember. Um, so, uh, so Australian literature, Australian fiction, I mean, we have so many fantastic writers mm. and so many extraordinary developing writers that I... I've always found that um, uh, uh, an important, an important time. English writers too, American certainly, but I'm 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 abysmally ignorant of, to do that. Just trying to keep up with it all is mm. very, mm, it's awesome. very difficult. And uh, theatre books, uh, um, although increasingly, it's it's works of it's. N- Novels, I suppose, that I find most, and social history that I find most, most interesting. Yes, we are speaking the words of one of our great playwrights at the moment, Patricia Cornelius, mm. in "Do Not Go Gentle" yes. at the STC. Um, and your character, remind me, is I play Evans, Evans. who is uh, was one of the. Uh, well, in Patricia's play, he is the the, the mouthpiece of a political activist. Um, he's in the government, and he's. Uh, He's wanting to change the world and make it a better place. Mm. And he's not finding it easy. <laughs> the character has a, a, a butte monologue about the power of words. He does, yes. He has a... a um, how He speaks about how words have all... He's always had a way with them and he's, he's never been at a loss for them and how wonderful they were and how powerful they are. When they speak truth, they, they just are formidable. And... The character that he's speaking with finally uh, says, that's all old hat. Time is gone. And he loses the power of words and he loses the fight. And he, he is disillusioned with the socialist parties that they they they've descend to some dirty deals and unscrupulous acts and and he dies in despair, lost for words. He becomes lost when the words desert him because they no longer have truth. Um, uh, Yes, and it's, I mean, a line like, uh, truth is unravelling me, taking off my overcoat and leaving me exposed. You don't get to say lines like that very often. I mean, it's the audacity of it, the simplicity of it, and the um, heightened uh, realism of it that are, that are um, uh, just <laughs> wonderful. We're lucky to be seeing it. Uh, it uh, won lots of prizes and, and premiered in Melbourne, I think, in 2010. So it's taken about 15 years to get to Sydney. And um, Yes, it's, it isn't that... Uh, there's... I don't know, it's... Uh, well... The reasons for it, I suppose, uh, are many. I'm just grateful that it is on uh, at the present time. The Sydney Theatre Company beautifully realised in Paige Ratray's um, production, and it's a big production. When it was done in Melbourne that one other time, it was at that very small, uh, long, little 
uh, theatre right in the heart of Melbourne. So it was very much a, um, uh, a, 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 a closet drama. But this is on the big stage of the Rosepacker. The, um, and of course the play, it, it deals, it's a play about old age and the imagination and the resilience and the love and the humour and the despair, uh, the, just the existence of old age. And it operates with two me metaphors. One is Scott's uh, Antarctic expedition and the other is the nursing home. So two settings, but imaginatively, um, one of the characters assumes Scott and is the way that he uh, provokes and leads this group of, of elderly people or suffering different forms of, um, of uh, the problems of old age. And, and those metaphors actually collide at times and clash. And it's, uh, but I mean, that in itself is, uh, is, uh, is remarkable. I mean, the Scots expedition um, actually uh, gives the structure to the play because in the first half it's the race to the pole to beat the Norwegians. That ends in failure. And then the second act is the retreat from the pole, which ends in a whole series of uh, end games, mm. and uh, so the structure is is there, and the the um, in uh, Charles Davis's uh, wonderful set and costumes. Sometimes the costumes of the nursing home, uh, like pajamas, will will go into the Antarctic landscape with that cross metaphor. Mm. Yes, mm. yes, and I mean, I suppose it's. The other aspect of it is that the end is like a white box, you know, it's just the, the, the white, the wipeout. Um, so for all of those, I mean, it's, it, it seems so absolutely right. Why it hasn't been performed, I don't know. Um, it, it is an, uh, seven, seven parts of it, uh, a couple of doublings, um, but uh, it's... Um, you're working alongside some old mates. Uh, oh, yes, yes. John Gaden and yes. Philip Post. Yes. Vanessa Downing. Yes. Oh, and a young actor, still young, Joss McConville, doing remarkable work, as always. And, um, and, uh, and Bridget and But also, of course, we have, if you don't mind, Marilyn Richardson. Oh, yes. Now, for those of a certain age who can still remember the Aida and the Voss and the Isolde, I mean, astonishing, uh, this uh, woman uh, remains as gloriously glamorous, as intuitive, as inquisitive uh, as ever. And she, we won't give anything away, but there was the most striking opening to the play. Isn't yeah. it? It's <laughs> unexpected, you yeah. would have to say, yeah. and glorious. There she is. So, look, it's, um, yes, it has lots of surprises within, the, within that uh, fairly bleak setting, you know. Um, uh, yes, there's, but what I love about all of the, the major voices, if we think of people like Patrick White, I'm talking about plays now, Patrick White, even David Williamson, the, the, the language is, is very formidable, you know. 
and uh, and Patricia. There's a, a poetic language that is used, which is um, not really naturalistic, mm. and I don't know whether that's got. It's certainly a play that requires attention, um, as does, do Patrick White's plays, as do uh, um, uh, David Williamson's plays, to be if you really take them seriously, um, and. But it's a play that, that really, um, if you're prepared to do that, it gives you lots to think of. And I've had several people talking to me after the performance some, time, some days, still sort of puzzling over and thinking about the resonances that the play has created. We've had um, sisters from nursing homes who's come in and said, found it very moving and said, yes, that's the world. Um, what am I trying to say? All of our best playwrights have resonances. Uh, the play is sort of eddying out. And often they require um, a particular kind of probing to realise themselves. And I, it's one of the things, I mean, with if I can just be, I'm not all that political look. The yes vote, yes vote, the voice. Mm. Um, it's we've, it's just got to be done. Uh, you see, I think there's so much sort of self doubt, self even self hatred amongst Australians now for ourselves. The, the land doesn't really accept us. You know, the who are with the culture of it all. It's um, there seems to be such a. a, 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 a readiness to uh, leap on the bagwagon and, and cancel this one and, and complain about the other. Um, and these plays bring, uh, I mean, I think overall there's some kind of a, a fuzziness in our thinking. We still aren't really standing on our own two feet and, and, and becoming a, a, a vibrant society. And, and the arts still are, it seems to me, a peripheral um, part of that. It's, it's not that you, you go, it's, it's not a, um, uh, essential, or, nor is it affordable, that you can always go to the theatre and you sort of, you like that one, didn't like that one, but it's all part of the same thing, feeding into the culture, which is what part of being in society means. It, it's... It, it's Peripheral. It's hand to mouth. It's uh, constantly um, fighting poverty, and of course, that's the incompetence of poverty. It just it leads to exhaustion, and it leads to uh, um, uh, well, end games all over. That's sounding a bit negative this morning. I don't. <laughs> I remain resilient, and I remain committed to it, but. Uh, it's an area that that all of the the um, talk about the voice is brought up because I don't really understand what the problem is. Mm. You know, I mean, it just seems to me so blatantly obvious. Just do it, and then if there are problems, we'll solve those problems. <laughs> that just seems to be anything which is proposed, which isn't perfect, is seemed to be oh outrageous, dreadful. You know, oh what will happen? Anyway.
enough already. The opposition seem to take itself very seriously. No matter what the party is in opposition, they just seem to, if one party says white, the other has to say has black. Has to say black, yes. And, and uh, all this nonsense about it will make us into a racist society, forgetting, as I read in the, the monthly, the monthly, this uh, month, that um, racism was part of the founding fathers' um, <laughs> bag, you know? Um, yes, but but you're right. It's the confrontational a- aspect of um, rather than just of trying property. to work together yes. for the good of the country. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, do not go gentle is a play about aging, and you're one of our um, senior veteran actors. In I the suppose so, but it doesn't seem that way. No, that's good. When I look around at some old people around me, I just think... <laughs> Who oh. you're working with. <laughs> does, it, does the play in rehearsal, does it bring up uh, some um, confronting themes for you? It, yes, it was. It, look, uh, it, it's a lovely group of people and, uh, and, it's, and Paige is very receptive to all our things and all of us have had um, experiences... Uh, with our with our own parents, with uh, friends uh, of all sorts of uh, end um, illnesses and uh, dementias and uh, uh, situations, which uh, which were being shared often with humour, but often too with a a really um, clear uh, view and un- un- an unblinking view. Um, so all of that informed all of our all of our work i think it was and, and it certainly informs each day you know as the odd creak of muscle and uh, of joint is um, is uh, aware that we have to, to bolster ourselves up and <laughs> off we go and working on that set which is so realistic you know those snow-capped mountains and, and domes there do you feel cold Yes, You're certainly cold watching it. We do feel yeah. very cold. Yeah. But can I just say, one of the lovely images that I maintain when I get in performance early, and I'm, I'm an actor that likes to get in early and then leave pretty quickly after the end of the show, but there will always be a lone figure with a, um, with a, a vacuum cleaner um, vacuuming up the old snow from... <laughs> <laughs> last night's performance yeah. to get fresh snow um, uh, for t- this evening. So I love that that madness of a, a, a man with a with a vacuum cleaner. Well, you were in the company of War of the Roses, weren't you? Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. And you yes, had that, that, that falling, we did. glittering gold. And yes, which caught, well, yes, we were standing on stage for an hour and a quarter, motionless, with the gold foil falling. It was lethal because it was plastic. Get that in the throat and you're in trouble. Um, And it was uh, a marathon to stand still that time. When it was falling evenly and I could see the back of the theatre, it was all right, but sometimes it would come in a flurry and you lost that. And that was when any sense of where gravity was or, or balance was very difficult. But also there was the black snow in Richard III. Mm. And the problem with that was it was fire retardant, paint like you know, all of that to prevent fires. But if you swallowed that, it wasn't, uh, wasn't good. Our snow in this production um, 
is of uh, potato-based, I'm told. So, so it's edible. We're not to worry about that. Um, but I have said, well, I don't know about having potato eight times a week for as long as the season goes. All those carbs, but, very fattening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there we are. There's a lot of secrets for you. The secrets <laughs> of the theatre. Yes. Now, you were educated at Maris Brothers during yes. the 50s. Was there much of a, um, an arts program there then that you could participate no. in? No? no, there wasn't anything like that, except the music. You see, music was the thing. I led the seconds in the choir. We did all the liturgical music uh, for the Catholic Church, all the seasons, all the Easter. I mean, and all of that was, was wonderful. That, uh, I loved it. But there was also uh, a Steadfords for inter-school Steadfords with different... Uh, and we were all the choirs doing that. So, and I was allowed to go in a Steadfords uh, as a singer, uh, wearing the school uniform, you see, so all of that was, was okie-dokie. Um, and that was, that was it. I'd managed to get on uh, sandwiched between the vaulting horse and something or other else, a scene from Richard III, The Death of Clarence, to one of the school um, uh, concerts in my final year, but that was more or less uh, with a, a dear friend, Douglas Hedge, who remained yes. in the theatre for, forever. Uh, we were sort of uh, in the same class, and I think more or less to shut us up, they allowed us to do that that uh, scene, knowing that we would hopefully have got the leaving certificate that year and be gone, <laughs> you see. <laughs> but... Um, and when I think of the, the resources that, that everyone has now, or the acceptance of that, of both drama as um, for itself, but also as a method of teaching, um, uh, uh, they were all to come later. It was uh, very much, if you were in the A class, it was maths and sciences, hopeless. And um, otherwise you could take the softer image of uh, languages, <laughs> so-called, or um, Latin and French were the languages, and, um, and history, so uh, modern history only we did. Um, having failed spectacularly chemistry at the, at the leaving trial, they allowed me to drop chemistry and take history, and so I was able to burn up on that and scrape a pass, and that was the only thing that I got my matriculation so I could go to university. So it was... That was the sort of way of it, really. Yeah. Um, little did you know at the time, but of course, uh, great grounding and, and informing for a role that you would do later on Blair's Christian Brothers. That's right. Yeah. Although the Marists would have regarded themselves as slightly more uh, upmarket than the Christian Brothers, I suspect. <laughs> the Christian Brothers really dealt with the um, the the, uh, the poor, um, and they bashed them out of the poor into the middle classes or into jobs that uh, out of the out of the trades in those days a lot of them and unfortunately as well um, sort of in uh, unintendingly um, eased them out of the out of the church the formal structure of the of the church though of course in in those days it was it was very Catholic and Protestant divide. Mm. It's different divides today, yeah. but then it was Catholic and Protestant. But the, 
but uh, but certainly and Ron's player Ron Blair's play which was such uh, when it was first done such a celebration of that particular cadence of speaking of education of building things into the play is, is simply has a chair representing a student who cap cops a lot of the flack and a blackboard that was and and a desk that was the the play audience directly addressed but it was a massive celebration people hadn't heard that voice on on stage um, and it was uh, fantastic um, I mean amongst uh, seminarians apart from anything else there would be whole groups of people that would come and just sort of it was because it was sort of a recognition of the of the energy I suppose of it and the 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 good intentions locked in that gnarled way that were desperation to get the the, the young lads up into a better a better uh, life than, than their parents were wanting a better life for their children from from what they'd had. Do you, doing that play earlier in this century, just at the time the Twin Towers were coming down in in New York, um, and so much had happened to the Christian Brothers, and all of the abuses within that system had come out. Not that there was anything of that in Ron's play, unless you think that bashing a child um, uh, with a uh, strap was some kind of um, uh, sexual violence rather than just good old-fashioned hetero violence. Um, but doing that, and that did an extensive tour um, throughout Australia, um, it was very a different play entirely. It could have been a play written by Beckett. It was uh, no laughs. It was very. It was re received in a very um, quiet way, really. It was, and that was. It just shows how important context is mm -hmm. and why things go in and out of favour, mm -hmm. or in and out of uh, not necessarily. Well, I suppose favour in terms of communicative communicative ability um, but it, it was extraordinary I mean it, when it was first done and it toured around Australia and into New Zealand but also went to London and what fascinated me in London was that um, it was it was okie dokie but then if the Irish were in it was a riot in the house I mean they they were on to every um, every nuance of the of the piece and and that was the other thing of course there's a strand of australian writing that that comes with the irish ray lawler would be a part of that strand you know and that there were a number of writers but but ron's play certainly fits fitted into into that is that the only solo performance you've done yes Yes, I've been trying to get up a, uh, a piece about the poetry of Les Murray for some time. Broad Bean Sermon, that, um, one of my favourite poems. Oh, look, there are, there, are, there are so many of his poems. I just felt this was an extraordinary Australian voice mm. that was going, and, um, <clears throat> and, uh, but sort of dead white males of a certain vintage and political persuasion are not the crash-hot... Um, commodity at the moment but his language remains uh, 
to me an absolute fascination and I, I'm not I'm not done with it yet uh, I have given readings of the poems and I know they communicate uh, straight to a particular heart um, there's no there's no nothing in the way so I'll, I'll keep it yes I mean and once we go down that route uh, with all those wonderful voices that we have uh, that and do you know Beverly Ruth Dunn was a Melbourne actress yes. a very great friend uh, godmother to our daughter um, and one of the strands of her work in her extraordinary career was to get poetry recitals of various Australian works and take them around at a time when we used to say have um, uh, a lunchtime poetry recitals at the Q Theatre, yeah. do you know? Yeah. Um, and she would do that around the country and it's, um, it's another strand of the work which I think is, uh, is um, important. Uh, um, there's so much streamlining going on in the subsidised countries to stay alive that anything slightly um, that doesn't fit in the mould is, is too big a risk, I suppose. Mm. But we're not done yet. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, your first forays onto the stage, is that at, at university? Uh, well, yeah, as soon as I left school, um, well, two things happened. One, uh, I did the leaving in 1960, I auditioned for NIDA. I got in on the same day. My father went to see Professor Quentin, who was the head of NIDA, which had just opened a sort of couple of years before. And he said to Professor Quentin, what job will you give my boy when he finishes that? And Professor Quentin said, oh, well, well, there are no jobs, but we'll give him a soul. To which my father replied, "That's thank you very much, Professor. He's got one of those already, and a good Catholic soul it is. Come on, son." So off we went. Uh, he wouldn't allow that to happen, and I was a dutiful son. I didn't know, so of course I accepted that, um, and began. I got into university, which I went part time. I was doing an arts law degree part time, which I'd still be finishing off, I think, but I. Um, I joined the Genesians. That was allowed Catholic, of course. Catholic, um, yes. so, and and there were a group of us waifs and strays that all ended up there at the same time. That have remained the very dearest of friends throughout our lives, and we had the best time, and we did all sorts of plays. But in, there were one of the just one of them extraordinary people that were there, um, because in those days, of course, everything to do with the theatre had to be sort of part-time. You had to have a job to get the money. To support then, the Yes, but there was this remarkable woman, a teacher, Margaret Rennick, and she said, well, look, we'll do three, we'll do Shakespeare, and not just one Shakespeare, we'll do three Shakespeare. So we'll do, uh, uh, we'll do uh, Richard III, we'll do Much Ado About Nothing, and then we'll do a King Lear, a little, I mean, it was, madness you know but we did it and it was a ex wonderful experience and but also all sorts of plays she stoops to conquers and oh lots and lots and lots um, Jane Eyre adaptations um, many things and that was sort of became my home away from home really um, very innocent and but with a great group of um, as uh, naive as most of us were in those days but but it was it was a home and we had a great thing I also of course I was uh, just terrified being at university I just didn't know what 
that I was the first part of my uh, family ever to have been at a university, and it was a very extraordinary experience. But but uh, I joined the drama society there, and I did um, some reviews with Suds and 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 also St John's did a, the uh, the uh, colleges did productions. I was in production of, of Antigone, but that so. When I was acting, I th I just felt well. I'm holding my own there. I had no doubts. I had to do it. There was no whether it was good or bad was irrelevant. I just did it. Um, but it was also an era that John Bell, John Gaydon, or Germaine Greer was my tutor in English there, uh, finishing off her doctorate. Um, there were lots of big kids that I could. Um, uh, 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 watch and be amazed about and, and sort of uh, there was a Coriolanus that John did which was just astonishing I think absolutely amazing um, so all of those things were around um, I ended up going full-time to you know did a BA dip ed started teaching was to go overseas with a scholarship for the education department um, to study drama in education, which was in vogue then in the UK. There was some kerfuffle within the um, education department. The papers didn't come through in time, so they said, I said, oh, well, I have to leave anyway. I've made arrangements. So, And because Patricia uh, Tanner at that stage was going overseas, then I was following. See, I've always been a follower. I've never been able to initiate <laughs> anything. But uh, either the coattails of those big brothers who were, uh, and John Gaydon remains one of those, and John Bell, uh, those the bigger kids, and of course then Richard Werrett, so went off to England, auditioned for Central School and got in to do a postgraduate course. And for me it was voice and speech. I was apprenticed to the head of the school, and but the the retiring one who was the pupil of Elsie uh, uh, Fogarty who founded it, um, I was invited to go to her pr uh, place in West Hampstead once a fortnight for an afternoon doing text. Either I decided it, she decided it, and it was like being psychoanalyzed. But that was a all the time. Why are you making those choices? Where's your voice? That sounded English. That's not you. Who are you? you know, all of those things, which were very confrontational to me. But the the piece was a very interesting one. The, there were only nine of us that did it, and we all had different disciplines that we were uh, um, uh, specialising in. But we had a core of uh, stuff which was improvised and it was always they would present an artistic problem we'd have to find a solution nothing right or wrong good or bad well I spent most of the six months the first six months just giggling my way through it everything just seemed to be outrageously funny to me even if others didn't find it so but um, that was the that was that cutting a long story short we were married Trish and I were married in England in 1970, uh, we had to leave uh, England because, unlike the Indians, we had our own passports by then. <clears throat> but it was a time, you see, always the right time, uh, of people were coming back uh, to Australia. There was a changing of the guard at NIDA, and uh, John Bell came back to be head of uh, acting, and I ended up 
at the ripe old age, I don't know what I was, 25 or something, uh, I've had a voice and speech coming from Central. And, and, and at Central, that was because I was apprenticed to the head of voice and speech at Central, and I attended uh, voice and speech classes for the actors, one, two, and three, for speech therapists. We were down at University College doing phonetics. And also uh, there was a course in lounge, the, the problems of the voice. Um, so I, I then came home with all of that, that information ready to, ready to go. So we, we came back and as luck would have it, that was the time when the winds of change were happening at home. And through those early days of, of, um, of, of Nimrod, again set up by John Bell, Richard Werrett and Ken Hawler, uh, that took us into the Whitlam era when Australian voices were being done as well as the classics were being done, uh, but in an Australian way with a kind of a larrikin flavour. And so from 70, uh, I was taught at NIDA from 70 to 70, in 73, and then was at, uh, at Nimrod till 79, day and night. So they were the, the sort of it was your schooling. I that was my schooling. Training, that yeah. was my training. Yeah. Yes, yes, it was really, and I was very. It's an extraordinary very lucky. period, wasn't it? But cutting your teeth on all of those classic uh, repertoire, yes. and going off to the UK, and then coming back, and it's all about to be an Australian explosion yes. of our own voice. Yes, these were early David and Williamson stuff. You know, there was Ron Ron Blair's play that we spoke of was there. Uh, um, it oh uh, um, uh, oh. Peter Canar, that's the other major, there's another Irish voice. Mm, a hard God, yeah. In. Yes, hard God. And I didn't get to do that play until many years later with John Gaydon um, at South Australia Theatre Company. Wonderful play. So, yes, that was, there we are. They're the voices. And, and in England, of course, you could get to the National for two and six standing at the back. You could get to the RSC for likewise all up in the gods, everything up in the gods looking down or standing at the back of the stalls. And, and no doubt seeing um, Everyone. some original productions of plays that have become classics. Absolutely. Yeah. Every, all of the Back in anger. All of those things. But, but most particularly for me, it was all the big kids. There was Schofield, there was Olivia, there was Richardson, there was Gilgood, there was, I mean... Redgrave. Redgrave. And the, and the glorious women that were from Dorothy... Oh, look, this... Dorothy Tootin. Oh, so many. Elizabeth... Flowerite. Uh, Smith. Smith. <laughs> Maggie Smith. Let me tell you, there was one uh, matinee of uh, Much Ado at the Nationals when it was still at the Old Vic. And um, Maggie Smith had left the company for a while. It was still in repertoire, and Joan Plowright was, I think. Well, there was, ladies and gentlemen, um, at this afternoon's performance, the, owing to the indisposition of Miss Plowright, oh, <laughs> the role of Beatrice will be played by Maggie Smith. No! Oh! <laughs> and we were off. And it was the most utterly glorious, irreverent, naughty, touching performance you could ever I mean just all of those kids Schofield was the one of the, all of the actors he was the one that I I just used to find the most mysterious and the most it was almost he would start in product, uh, performance in, in a kind of a neutral and then the imagination would fire and something would happen and then it would go in, and then 
It was very extraordinary. But he was also the original in the Schaefer Amadeus, for example. Salieri. And Trisha and I uh, got one, managed to get one return in the very front row and one uh, uh, seat right at the back of the gods, so we swapped at intervals. So <laughs> they're Both all the theatre going, yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear, 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 that's unleashed a lot, Peter. I love it, I love it. So back at Nimrod, um, yes, d- developing our own voice in plays like uh, Well Hung, I see. And, yes. Uh, Ginger's Last Stand. Oh yes, that was, that was something, yes. That was a wonderful um, uh, musical uh, about the death of uh, cartoon characters. Um, I think best remember, well, it had a stellar cast. Uh, uh, Robin Nevin was Minnie. Uh, oh, look, everyone was there. It had Tommy Dysart was Dick Tracy. Kids don't want my kind of dick anymore. Or that sort of thing. I mean, and it's um, uh, just... Lots and lots and lots. It's best remembered, I think, for the Martin Sharp poster of it mm. with, with Ginger with his little monkey. Sitting in the gutter. Sitting in the yeah. gutter with his... They wouldn't let me have a monkey. I was desperate to have a monkey, but I didn't get it there. But it was... Um, and, and also, Ken Hall's lyrics. Some of the songs were really good. It was, it was a bit of a mess of a show, but um, it was the sort of thing that... At that stage, it didn't matter. Nimrod was a place to be. And you'd go and you'd see a good show, or you'd go and see a real dud and go to the bar afterwards. Or, but it, 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 it was sort of happening, mm. a happening place. Shorthand was there. And it remains, that auditorium remains, the best auditorium in, in Sydney, I Is must it the, say. the Griffin now? Uh, or no, the Bel- no, no. Belvoir Where space. is Belvoir yes, 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 That was the Nimrod yeah. becoming Belvoir, that space. In that, it's big enough to have a go, but the audience is easily contactable. Mm. And, and, and learnt that particularly, that, that wonderful production of John's, uh, of, of Much Ado, uh, with Anna as, um, as Beatrice, and, and I played Benedict, and we... It was with, done with spaghetti. It was set in a circus tent. It was done with spaghetti Italian accents. Wouldn't be allowed now, I suppose. But it was it was pure joy from beginning to end, and it was uh, the audience were utterly on side, and it was it was wonderful. So you're performing, I imagine, up to seven and eight roles a year. At, at yes, I suppose it it would have been. So you're rehearsing one play during the day as you're performing another at night. Not. Always, but the crossover, but certainly it wasn't a case of finishing one play and then starting rehearsal. The overlaps were happening (coughs) all the time. And in some cases, when Richard did the Henry's, a sort of a a, a condensed version of the the Henry's, they would, we did parts one and two with a sort of a a meal of cold chicken and, and things between the performances so there were something big on the move something that that happened again later at the Sydney Theatre Company when they did Nicholas Nickleby mm. you know um, uh, which nearly brought the company to financial ruin but instead brought it to um, both artistic and um, financial um, uh, uh, steadiness actually but the risks at the time were enormous and that's something needs to be said when you look back on it 
uh, it looks, you know, as if that was all something that, you know, happened and da-da-da, it was easy, but nothing was ever easy and nothing was done without cost. And <clears throat> it were all leaps into the unknown and you never knew where you were going to go next or what was to happen next. You just knew that there, then there was something, there were lots of things happening. Mm. Uh, that's the difference with today. Well, Nicholas Nickleby also had a, a company of about 40 actors. It was astonishing. Yeah. And, and at one stage, they were actually uh, paying the salaries of those actors without a penny coming in. You know, so it, it, was, it was huge. I'm sure John Gayden would speak most eloquently because he directed half of that and Richard Ware did the other. He was assistant uh, um, director of the Cine Theatre Company by that stage. I miss seeing those large company of actors perform a play. I mean, it seems that most playwrights now are, are under the mindset that they have to write, you know, uh, no more than four or five characters in, a, in the hope of being staged. That's right. Yeah. And, and or in something like the Into the Woods at, at Belba, for example, not only did it have a, a score which was scaled down to two pianos, give or take, some people at um, actors at um, unpaid actors at um, uh, 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 oh, mine's gone now, having <laughs> brought all that up, um, just at, at various keyboards backstage as well, but uh, with a lesser cast, so that meant that every, not only... Yes, there was some several, doubling up. Yeah. A lot of doubling up and sometimes trebling up um, to, uh, uh, to get them to get them on, you know, so rather than in... A, and the same thing, of course, uh, that's the Hayes Theatre, which has done remarkable work over the last thing, but um, heavily subsidised by actors, and because it's such a small space. I mean, and so... And then eventually it comes to the space, well, I simply can't afford to do that, so I can't do that. I will leave the profession and do other things, you know. So it's, it's, it's sort of back to those days but with less hope I suppose mm. less hope um, Into the Woods you were performing on stage with your daughter I was indeed <coughs> yes, yes. Um, <coughs> how did you receive the news when she told you that she wanted to be an actor um, oh I think she'd always been an, <laughs> an actor always performing yeah. I thought yes I think so and she was one of those uh, she had a lot of energy always as a child and imagination and and she had a, a range of interests so and we said well she can do anything but you had to follow everything through for at least a term so you just couldn't do two pottery things do a terrible mess of something and say well i've done that you had to follow it through a little she was very lucky that she had a beautiful um, music teacher and she had a beautiful um, uh, mrs jones and she had a, a wonderful um, dancing teacher, who uh, Michelle, uh, Miss Michelle, who ran the um, the Borovansky um, uh, thing, and still went on to the Borovansky. And Madame Z used to come across from Adelaide <coughs> for the examinations each year. And um, those two women were very strong women, and were very, um, very uh, they were wonderful teachers. And she just thrived in those in those things. She had dyslexia. We now know it went through a, a it was 
in those days, the, even in those days, the actual, um, I was worried because of my eye background, but, and so that was that. But you know, there was an interesting uh, thing that happened. When she was in secondary school, there were some plays that were done with Aloysius or with Riverview and Loretto, where she was at. And they were, uh, Riverview were to do a production of Measure, measure for Measure. And they wanted her to play uh, the, the sister, Isabel. Uh, the the uh, religious sister, I mean. Um, and uh, the school were against it. And I said, well, look, I honestly don't think she'll be able to, to learn it because the language of that piece is very difficult. And, but I said, it's, if it works, it, it'll be good. Anyway, they gave permission. She did learn it. How, I don't know. And she became really alive on stage during that production. She had free access to her emotions. So I knew that there was something there which was um, engaged fully by that and was indeed a way that she could learn and could go forward. She wouldn't uh, audition for NIDA when she got surprisingly to us. Uh, well, it was during her time at Loretto that they allowed, um, they always had music, but they allowed um, uh, drama in. And she actually got quite a good uh, result in the, in the HSC, much to our surprise, because of drama yeah. and music as well as other things. Um, but she wouldn't go to NIDA. She, wanted, uh, she did a sound recordist's course, so she, which started with splicing the tape in those days wow. and going through so the boys wouldn't tell her what to do with amps. She got a group together and they played the clubs with this group. So there wasn't much sleep for the parents until the door clicked at night as she'd actually come home or the father had gone out <laughs> to collect her from some God for <clears throat> So there was all of that and from there she uh, just kept it, it happening. She got a she was very lucky in that ICS, the agency, was there at the time. Bill Shanahan had just sort of taken under his wing for a while. But um, there was a, uh, she was doing her music program in which she did some Sondheim songs. And she, um, she uh, was doing that program at Loretto that night. There was a, um, uh, a strike at the Opera House. And so uh, the ICS girls... Pauline and uh, 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 oh dear, the beautiful, beautiful woman that that was so good to her, whose name is just Fred. I shall find it in a little minute. They came over and saw it, and they said, "We'll we'll take you on board." So um, they did, and so she was with ICS, and um, this lovely, lovely lady who was a tough orbit with a very soft heart would stand no nonsense from Tamsin and things that her parents might have been saying, she said, and Tamsin hopped to. So she guided the career through um, into finally, well, it was the big ones were uh, the Johnny O'Keefe story. Shout. The shout, the, um, and, uh, and the Oliver that took her to Drury Lane finally with Cameron McIntosh. But there were, there were uh, other other musicals. It was the music strand. She did. Uh, uh, she did end up playing in Isabel in Measure for Measure for Bell Shakespeare, and one other uh, play 
uh, as well with them. That lovely serendipity that um, yes. you know you having worked with Richard Werrett early on, and then Richard directed Shout. That's right. Mm. And and she at one stage he wanted to do a Vita, and uh, um, that I had done um, <laughs> before as Peron, and she auditioned for that to him. And the whole of the Evita then fell over, but um, but it was that audition that Richard said, "Oh no, that'll be right." And indeed, she sang um, at a, a memorial service for Richard. She sang "Crazy" at that at the Opera House, and um, that was um, that was a, a very big event, and um, and sort of, I suppose was her graduation into that theatre-going community, really, yeah. Do Not Go Gentle by Patricia Cornelius is being presented by the Sydney Theatre Company in a production directed by Paige Rattray and featuring a stellar cast that includes Philip Quast, Marilyn Richardson, John Gayden, Josh McConville, Bridget Zengini and Vanessa Downing. And also today's featured guest on stages, the great Peter Carroll. The production plays the Roslyn Packer Theatre until June 17. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the Stages podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. And you can follow us on all of our socials, on Instagram and Facebook, and also subscribe through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages. Mm-hmm.